Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for First St. Charles United Methodist Church in downtown St. Charles, Missouri. We are so glad that you're here, and it's our prayer that you feel safe, welcome, and wanted in this space. If you're interested in finding out more about us or supporting our ministries, you can connect with us online at firststcharlesumc.org. Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7. To what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Inspired by the Spirit, let this be our call, extending Christ's love and acceptance to all. Choices, choices, choices. Who is it that doesn't love a choice? It happened 30 years ago, though in one form or another I've seen it play out dozens of times. I had a church member come to me for parenting help. In this case, help managing an elderly parent. I was no help whatsoever. This particular person had a dad whose eyesight and reflexes made driving dangerous. His son was trying to get dad to give it up. Dad was hearing none of it. The son tried reasoning, encouraging, cajoling. Nope. He tried taking the battery out of the car. Dad ordered another battery. He tried hiding the keys. Dad called a locksmith. Exasperated, he put sand in the gas tank. Dad called the Lincoln dealer with whom he was on a first-name basis and ordered a new car. Just haul the old one off, he said. And they did. Don't you just love family dynamics? While part of me wanted to give the dad props for persistence, I felt his son's complete exasperation. I felt it too on the other end with parents who pour all kinds of love onto their children, doing everything humanly possible, being as nice as they can be only to see their children start self-destructing. So instead, they shift and try tough love. In some cases, neither tact seems to work. It appears our children's choices are, in large part, their own. You want to know the secret of parenting? I'll give you the secret to parenting. Not everything is in your control or within your power to influence. We can do all that we can do, but at the end of the day, they're going to do what they're going to do. That's all to say, maybe we can relate to Jesus who one day bemoaned the response that both he and his cousin John were getting from folk. They're like 
children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, he said. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. Jesus and John. John and Jesus. They were two boys from the backwater of Galilee, both doing the best that they could, only to see people having none of it. They were cousins, presumably raised together, but whose ministry would take radically different paths, both getting the same result. What? What's it going to take? If Jesus played his song in a major key, light and breezy, John's song was sung as a minor offering, dark and foreboding. If John's voice could be recognized in the refrain of R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, Jesus could well have hummed along with Bobby McFerrin, Don't worry, be happy. Neither tune was resonating. People were buying none of it. Putting it another way, did Jesus come speaking to us in the indicative mood declaring God's extravagant goodness while John's voice was heard in the imperative urging us urgently to repent? Is this Jesus' final indictment that we don't believe that we're as sinful as John said, nor do we believe that God is as good as Jesus would have us know? Do we really believe that we are as sinful as John said, or God as good as Jesus proclaimed? All during Lent, we'll work our way through a series that we're calling Fingerprints of Grace. I'll gladly give away the whole series right now and say, as a child might put it, God is way gooder than we could ever know. Starting two Sundays ago, however, we started paving the way for that message more focused on John the baptizer. Ours, like John's, is a calling to repent, to change course. For the Gospels, John and Jesus go together, like peanut butter and jelly or cheese and pizza. You can't imagine one without the other. Lest we let our Baptist prejudice steer us wrong, we have only to recall that Jesus found it important enough to submit to baptism by John in the Jordan. And when he was asked at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? Son of man, they said. Some say John the Baptist. Thinking that Jesus was a Baptist wasn't an insult. Jesus' way and John's way didn't lead to two different places. They were two ways to the same God. What then 
might we make of what Jesus calls John's weeping and wailing. I was 12 when in 1973 Billy Graham came to the St. Louis arena for 10 days. Like a lot of us of that generation, I was brought to his crusade by parents to witness the tens of thousands who responded to his message with crucial decisions for Christ. For many of my generation, John the Baptizer was seen through the lens of Billy the Baptizer. For my part, I've come to see John more broadly as someone who gave his life over to having the hard conversations. Far from majoring on the minor, he majored on a message geared to what we most needed to hear. Which would you rather get? What you want to hear or what you need to hear? John proffers the harder truth. Standing in this long line of unwelcomed prophets who would tell us that America is infected with racism down to our very core. That it's bigotry, plain and simple, that causes people to reject their gay neighbors and so reject the Christ they pretend to follow. We don't hate the sin and love the sinner. We're just whitewashing our hate. And the world is burning up with global warming. Deny it all you want, but we're building our own bonfire of hell on earth. John stands in this long line of prophets who push us toward uncomfortable truths. He's weeping and he's wailing and he's telling us things we need to hear whether we want to or not. As I ponder the prospect that this time next year I'll be retired. I've come to grips with the fact that there are some ministry and vocational goals I'll never see realized. For instance, I've wanted just once for someone to come to me wanting to speak about their own sin. Lots of people very few weeks go by without someone wanting to tell me something they think is wrong about our community, about our church, about something a staff member said or did, about something that I said or did. I've come to think about it as kind of an emotional vomit. We're sick and need to get it out of our system. But just once, just once, God, I'm not asking too much. I'd like someone to come and say, honestly, Pastor, I'd like to talk with you about my sin. Why do you suppose we all want to talk about everyone else's sin and not our own? Is it because as Wordsworth put it, 
the world is too much with us. Or as T.S. Eliot put it, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Or is this really and truly our calling to bear as much reality as with God's grace we can? To hear the weeping and wailing of John and join in. Here's what I really hope to see in ministry. A church where people feel safe enough to be bold enough to have the fierce conversations, the hard conversations, to thoroughly interrogate reality. Could we be a church? Wouldn't you like to be a church where we could ask the hard questions, at times uncomfortable questions, even when it might make us squirm? What would it be like to be a part of a church where we could be honest and real and authentic with each other. And no doubt you've heard about artificial intelligence. It's the next big thing in the information revolution. Computers that can learn. Does it scare you? Does it thrill you? It thrills me to think of the ways that it might help us see advancements in health care and maybe the ways to predict climate change and make manageable tasks that are way beyond what human beings can do. Scares the daylights out of me when I think of the ways that it can further divide us and deceive us. Regardless, it is with us. Late sometime last year, in a staff meeting, I asked our staff, I thought I was challenging them, don't you think, I said, that we might ought to give some thought to how we could leverage artificial intelligence for our ministry here at church? I hear talk of pastors using AI to write sermons. It's not hard to imagine that one day people will see projections of pastors who aren't really real preaching sermons people flock to hear. Don't you think I said that we might need to give some thought to how we could leverage artificial intelligence for our church's ministry? Our own Katie Rome absolutely floored me when she responded, well, actually, we already are. It seems we used it to draft the script for our Christmas offering video, an offering, by the way, that garnered a record number of gifts. Whether we want it or not, whether we're fully prepared for its dangers or not, artificial intelligence is here. What I worry about just as much, maybe more, is artificial spirituality. Artificial spirituality has 
always been here. It's the choice to not thoroughly interrogate reality, to not listen, to not repent, to not change. Artificial spirituality has always been a choice. We have a choice. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to go all the way with Him, inevitably we find ourselves in the wilderness and water with Jesus and we'll join in John's weeping and wailing too. And in the background of our worship, if we listen, the minor key still resounds.